Hello and welcome everyone to the Monday Morning General Podcast, where we give you the play-by-play analysis of battles from antiquity to the 20th century. I'm Brendan, that's Bjorn, and returning again this week to finish off this battle is Sam. Sam, it's good to see you. Bjorn, it's also good to see you, man. Always good to see you, Brendan. (laughs) uh, Last week, we discussed the prelude to the Battle of Kanai. At this point in the Second Punic War, Hannibal had already successfully crossed the Alps, minus a bunch of infantry and elephants, and he won two huge victories, uh, one at the Battle of Trebia and one at the Battle of Lake Tresemene in what is now northern Italy. In this episode, we discuss in detail the battle that made Hannibal famous. Let's get to it, boys. Yeah, so I'll start here. So in the spring of 216 BC, Hannibal's going to take the initiative. He's going to seize a large supply depot at Cannae. That's in the Appian Plain. He's placing himself between the Romans and their crucial source of supply. So Publius, he's going to note that the capture of Cannae caused great commotion in the Roman army, for it was not only the loss of the place and the stores in it that distressed men, but the fact that it commanded the surrounding district. Okay, so he's holding a very key and vital piece of territory here. Not only is it a supply depot, but it has a good position in the surrounding area. So this is going to require a response. Uh, the Romans are going to march quickly, two-day march. They're going to find him down there in Canaia, all right? So we talked about the two leaders already. We had Varro and Paulus. So Varro is going to be in command on the very first day. He shows up, sees Hannibal's there, uh, and... We think that uh, that this guy Varro is he's known as being kind of a reckless guy. He's got a hubris in nature, and he's determined to defeat Hannibal. So as the Romans are recklessness might have been played up by the pro Scipio Africanus sources and Publius and Livy. Well, and the pro Paulus. It was Paulus's Paulus, grandson yes. that was bankrolling yeah. uh, the this historian here. Anyways, hey, I'm telling Anyways. you, vagaries of it, history, right? Like who knows. <laughs> History is written by the people who actually write it down. So the I'll just tell you. Is, is written by the people that pay for the historian to write it down. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> well, that, that could work too. So as the Romans approach Canai, some of Hannibal's light infantry and cavalry are going to ambush him. Varro will repel the attack and continue slowly on his way to Canai. So this, this is actually a key point because the Romans are going to look at this and they're going to bolster their confidence going into this battle. They say, hey, we were attacked and we pushed him out. We pushed forward. We're moving forward, right? Now, do you, Paulus, do you, think, that was Han- do you think that was Hannibal's intent? Or do you think he was actually trying to <clears throat> harm the Roman legions? Like, was he trying to bolster their confidence? Or do you think that, like, was it all a big play? Or what, what do we think was the, was the point of that? Because in every account of this, this skirmish seems minor, but it's mentioned in every single account I've read about the Battle of Cannae. Now, sometimes I think that master chess players sometimes just move a piece because they have to. I don't know if he's playing three-dimensional chess at this point in the game, but he might very well be. I can't. I don't know the guy. I don't know his genius. I know he is a genius. Maybe he did. I don't know. It, Sam, it might just be the thing, too. Like You're very aware in the reconnaissance are like, never keep your recon in reserve, right? Gain contact with the enemy. So it, it might have been something like that, right? Like Hannibal just trying to figure out where the Romans are and keep in contact. Sure, but them. I mean, I, and we, we can talk about it later, but I just I, I just don't know what Hannibal's end game here was with this. Well, I mean, reconnaissance, yes, but like if you have a much smaller force, why are you harassing the enemy on their way through? It just doesn't make much sense to me, but it seems important to the story, which is something that I wanted to bring up with you guys. But yeah. Yeah. 
So Hannibal, uh, he's going to have superior cavalry forces here, and Paulus is going to oppose this engagement. So you've got Varro wanting to attack. You've got Paulus saying, nope, we don't want to attack. Uh, he says that it's foolish to fight on open ground, which when you have when you're outnumbered by with the cavalry, when the the Carthaginians have more horsemen than you do, maybe he's on the right the right foot there, thinking that open ground is not the place to fight a battle, right. even though better. even though you significantly outnumber their infantry, right? The Romans outnumbered the Carthaginian infantry, but the horsemen is where it happens on open. Right. Well, and plane. think about it like that. That makes sense, because if you're in an open field and your cavalry can maneuver much faster than you, they can easily gain a flank, which was right. absolutely detrimental, not only to, to to all armies of antiquity. You think of the, the Greek phalanx. It was structured to, to fight forward. Same thing with the Roman legions structured to fight forward. So being outflanked by something that can just simply move faster than you is yep. what is totally detrimental. So now they're. The Romans are going to decide that although it's maybe not the smartest thing to attack, they're also not going to withdraw. It's going to be unwise for them to withdraw. So they're going to set up a camp. They're going to have two-thirds of their army east of the river, Oftus, uh, and they're going to send the remainder to fortify a position on the opposite side away from the main camp. The purpose of this second camp is to actually cover mm -hmm. the foraging parties from the main camp, potentially harass those of the enemy and also uh, a supply, a water supply. So controlling this water supply is going to be an important thing when we move into the next day of battle here. Setting up a camp also is not a weird thing for the Romans. Like, this is what the Roman army does. They love building fortified camps. They, like, after every marching day, this is what they do. Like, they have oh, this yeah. knowledge of a science. So, like, this it's is not amazing. a weird thing that the Romans are doing. Well, and also, it's interesting to think, like, Picture yourself marching 35 or 40 miles in a day and then saying, man, we made it to our destination. And then you have to set up an entire camp yeah, and you have like to build trenches and palisades yeah. and yeah, the Ab earthworks. Like Abatees, yep, yeah. everything. So the two armies are going to stay in their respective locations for about two days. On the second day, which we think is August 1st, okay, they're... Yeah, this is this is ancient sources writing stuff down, and they don't look at it and say, "Oh, it's August 1st, Because remember, this is also before Augustus Caesar, who the Marcus right. came for, right? So like, like exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so on August first, which wasn't August first at the time, what do you think August stands for? I don't know. Let's go build this camp. <laughs> <laughs> So Hannibal's aware that Varro's going to be in command the following day. So Hannibal's going to leave his camp. He's going to offer battle. Uh, Paulus is going to refuse it. When the request was rejected, then Hannibal, recognizing the importance of water from that river that the Romans are encamped on, he's going to send his cavalry to the smaller Roman camp, harass the water-bearing soldiers that were found outside of camp. And according to Publius, Hannibal's cavalry is going to boldly ride up to the edge of the Roman encampment, causing havoc and thoroughly disrupting the supply of mm. water to the Roman camp. Just think about this. So Hannibal, knowing that he is going to provoke battle on the next day when Varro, who is the more uh, you know, war drummy of the two uh, Roman generals, is in command, he knows that, right? And so he is denying them the most basic of human essentials, water. The day before you go into a battle in the hot August sun in the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. uh, like the Mediterranean area, which is like hot in August, um, and you're going to fight completely dehydrated. Like this is that when we talk about Hannibal being a a a, gen, a genius of a general, like this is part of the stuff that we're talking about. It's not even the battlefield stuff. It's all of the the in between kind of gamesmanship. 
All right, Brendan, can we get into this whole? Yeah, let's talk about the train here quick. So Kenai is on the edge of a huge plant and Bjorn, like you said, right? Like it's like a storehouse for grain. Uh, That's why Hannibal moved down there was he wanted to feed his army and then start like peeling away some of these uh, Italian uh, locals to his to his cause and take them away from the Romans. Uh, So like if you look at Google Maps at the Battle of Kenai, like it is just farm fields forever around this place. So it's like this huge open area. It's perfect for cavalry and large army movement and maneuver. Uh, let's see. So the Romans knew that Hannibal had the advantage, so they were looking for terrain that would negate that cavalry advantage. We don't know exactly where the battle took place. So I'm going to go with the analysis that Robert O'Connell has in his book, The Ghost of Kenai. So if you look at the battlefield right now on Google Maps, there is a river right there that runs next to this village of Kenai called the Ofanto. Uh Scholars and historians now think that the Ofanto actually ran further north than it does currently on the maps. And that's the river that Bjorn, you alluded to earlier. It's the river of Fetus. Uh, so basically, like the, that river of Fetus is a fetus. Uh, is on the, uh, like it basically, like it bounded the battlefield on the north to the northeast side. And then, yeah, it's tracking further from where the modern river Ofanto is. Because right now, like Ofanto like, runs right next to Kenai. And they're right next to that that hilly ground to the south. So they think that river actually ran a little further north. Um, and then so on the south, the southwest side of the battlefield was the village of Kenai, uh, which was east and then uh, nestled in two hills that were to the west of Kenai. Uh, so basically the battlefield was bounded by a river to the north, high ground and village to the south. I was going to say, like the the selection of the battlefield by the Romans here is is pretty genius. I think Paulus actually wanted a different position more to the north and to the west that was more in rolling hills. Uh, but what? Oh, so there was no hills up there. It was all plain to the north, and so that was why I think the Romans went to where they went because it was not even It was all it was all plains. That is correct. But yeah. Paulus wanted to go like fifteen miles. In oh. another direction, into an at least from the source that I that I read, sure. but he wanted to go in a in a completely other direction. Uh, but still, the the selection of the battle site by the Romans was actually a very uh, genius maneuver. So, uh, yeah. Brendan had mentioned the River Aphidus to the north uh, uh, northwest, and yeah. that is going to completely negate the the cavalry's ability to exactly. flank you. Right. Same thing with those hills and the and the, right. the city of Kenai on on the east. Like, so what they're trying to do is negate what I had mentioned earlier. Is yeah. if you if you are flanked, you are you are toast. So there's no um, way to like. So they're basically like building up the like they selected the train so they cannot be flanked by cavalry. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so the distance between the river and those hills that we're talking about is 1.3 miles, and it was a flat battlefield at the Battle of Kifana. Like, so we're talking about like, you know, our terrain analysis, right? Observation, avenues of approach, obstacles, key terrain, cover concealment, almost none of that. There were no obstacles. Uh, there were like no avenues of approach. There was no key terrain, uh, wide open observation. There was no cover and concealment. This was a ancient boxing ring. For but at the same time, we've got, I mean, you look at it, it's not that bad of a, of a battlefield, right? We've got anchor, we've anchored our flanks. We've anchored our flanks left and yeah. right. Our our men, we have more of them. They're well armed. They're ready to go. And we've yeah. got 1.3 miles in which to fight this fight. 
so that's that's going to be a, a very interesting point here come come the battle. Yes, the Romans have twice as many men, upwards of eighty to 90,000 men. But as Brendan said, this battlefield is only 1.3 miles wide. So yeah. you so you the Romans, they they like to fight in, in certain nationals. We we covered that in the last episode of how deep and and so that was a, a very standard uh, standard for them is you fight only so many echelons deep. Yeah. Whereas now, since the battlefield is constricted on either side, the Romans are going to be forced to go twice as deep as they normally would um, because they got to constrict on the sides. Um, Which is what, like, we'll talk about this, but I think that's what Paulus and Varro wanted, right? They wanted to, like, right. have a really strong center. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but okay. yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about the weather quick. Sam, you just talked about it a little bit earlier. This battle was fought in August at the end of summer in southern Italy. It was hot, especially for the heavy infantry. Remember last episode we talked, uh, you know, if they were in mail or not, but they were 50 to 80 pounds of kit. They had a lack of water on the battlefield, especially like if that raid happened, that water raid happened, uh, the Romans had no, almost probably no water. Right. Uh, and then on the Roman side, they were very green, right? Like over the winter, they had uh, raised a huge consular, like double consular army quadruple consular army right so like they had a bunch of green troops that hadn't been like trained for endurance uh this was the perfect setting for there to be heat exhaustion uh even though the punic army was well trained it was also concerned for them right the punic army had been through a lot they were very well trained but still like you're talking about august in the southern med it's going to be hot and it's super dry so uh visibility here would also have been poor it was hot and dusty so you put around 150,000 men and a lot of horses in basically a 1.3 square mile box, there's going to be a lot of dust that's kicked up, which will limit visibility. So it's hot and it's dusty. So that's kind of what the weather was like. And I don't think there was any rain. Like I didn't read about any rain that led up to the battle. So it was just a hot, dusty, huge flat field. Um, all right, let's jump into the order of battle quick. Uh, so for Rome, this army was about twice as large as any army the Romans had fielded to this point. Both consuls, Varro and Paulus, would command four legions plus an equal-sized ally or uh, allied unit. So they had eight legions in total, plus eight uh, comparable-sized allied forces. Each legion was also expanded from 4,200 infantry to 5,000. So this army would be 80,000 infantry strong, plus another 6,000 cavalry. Four of these legions were green, however, like I mentioned, just rookie troops. Like, you know, the Romans have some, like, modicum of, like, military training as they're growing up. Like, think about, like, you know, like, gym class in high school, basically. Like, they have some sort of very basic military training, but nothing like they're not fighting in the manifold system yet. So they had maybe, a, you know, the spring and summer to, to train, but they're very green. Uh, both the light infantry, something like 20,000 and the cavalry were also of suspect capability. Uh, you know, the light infantry is like the, the youngest of the young. So they just kind of pulled in and here's a, a javelin. Good luck boys kind of thing. Uh, so that's that Rome, huge army, but half green, not a lot of experience. Uh, 80,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry. All right, on the Carthaginian side, a mix of Spanish, Gallic, and Numidian cavalry, each with their own fighting style and together 10,000 strong. The Spanish and the Gauls rode together. The light Spanish with javelins would hit first, followed by the heavily armored and spear-equipped Gauls. The Numidians acted as an exploitation force. They were fast, nimble, and they were ruthless. They fought basically like um, step horsemen. Those things like Scythians or the Mongols. They fought like them, just without bows. They had spears, uh, but they were ruthless like the Mongols were. Uh, the Punic army consisted of 40,000 infantry. What they lacked in numbers, they made up for in quality. 
Robert O'Connell saw posits that almost every soldier in the Punic Army had killed a Roman to that point. Uh, they had spent wow. considerable time training with each other. Think of like a march from Spain to the Alps, from Alps to Northern Italy, right. you know, pick up Gauls, fight Romans at Trebia, Tresemene, uh, a bunch of other skirmishes, a bunch of marching through Italy. Uh, these guys are hardened veterans. They He's know they Hannibal and this and this very group. Like year of three, men. I think, right? Year three, yeah. They've been yeah. together year three, just traipsing through Italy. Yeah, let's jump into the battle narrative, boys. And first, we'll discuss the tactical deployment of each force. All right. So, conventional doctrine at the time said that an ancient army would have its infantry placed in the center, and the cavalry would be on the two flanking wings. The Romans, sense, right? absolutely. Right, because your the cavalry Romans, is trying to flank their cavalry, and they're way they're, fast. Yeah. yeah. So the Romans follow this convention very closely. Uh, Sam alluded to it already. They're going to take the do the extra numbers in that 1.3 mile line, uh, grassy plain. They're going to choose to have an extra depth rather than breadth for their infantry. It's uh, kind of two pronged, but their hope was to break quickly through the center of Hannibal's line with the you know a big weight that you're pushing forward against your enemy's line. Because, because think about this is this is very interesting. So if you can't if you have bounded your battlefield by a river and hills and a, and a town and you know your cavalry is not as good or as numerous as your enemy's cavalry, you're going to have to make a flank by punching through the middle and right. then creating a flank on either side. So that's the Romans intent here. Well, and Varro, he knew that the Roman infantry had managed to penetrate Hannibal's center at Trebia, and yep. so it's this he's learning from from yep. the past, right? They had lost that battle, yes, but they had actually penetrated through. So he had his principes stationed immediately behind the Hastati. Remember, the Hastati are the young bucks in the front line, and then you have the principes are the ones in the middle, and then the triarii were the guys in the back. And then you've got like the skirmishers, the velites, and those dudes are all in the front, okay? They're going to throw their javelins. They're going to retreat back and withdraw. All right, so, uh, Bjorn, you pulled in a great quote here. So uh, Polybius wrote this. Uh, the maniples were near each other, or the intervals were decreased, and the maniples showed more depth than front. So they like they broke away from the traditional Roman deployment to fit within this box and to really stack the center is what Polybius is saying here. Right. So even though they outnumbered the Carthaginians, this depth-oriented deployment meant that the Roman lines had a front that was roughly equal to the size of their numerically inferior opponents. All right. But just imagine you've got the Romans, they're deep stacked. You've got the Carthaginians who are lengthwise, breadthwise stacked. Okay. So their, their line is not as thick, which is giving that idea that the Romans can in fact punch through this. Okay. Mm-hmm. The typical style of ancient warfare was to continuous, continuously pour infantry into the center and attempt to overpower the enemy. This is a bludgeoning match. You are going yeah. to go at your enemy and you are going to hack away, all right? Hannibal understood that the Romans fought their battles like this, so he's going to deploy his troops accordingly. Well, one, one more point on the Romans here. Um, I think another reason why they chose to do this was because it gives the infantry a lot more endurance. I think he was anticipating a long, you know, kind of drag-off fight here, like in the boxing match. And so it's easier to, like, you replace guys in and out, right? Like, you have this big group of people in the back that are fresh, that haven't been fighting, so you can kind of rotate them in and out. And then remember, these legions are very green. And so it's a lot easier to control a deep line than it is a wide line. Right. So it gives the Roman, it gives Paulus and and Varro a lot more control of the maniples. 
uh, deploying in this way. So, all right, Bjorn, take it away with the Carthaginians. All right, so Hannibal, he deploys his forces based on the particular fighting qualities that each unit has, which makes sense because he's got a vast array of different ethnicities, different fighting styles, different equipment. So an example, he's got his bet. Uh, Belareric slingers, those guys are from Spain. They're going to be placed behind the infantry. So they're going to be throwing missiles, rocks at the Romans as the Romans are advancing. You've got the Iberians, the Celtiberians and the Gauls. They're going to be in the middle. And it's interesting that they noted in the, in these historical, uh, sources, they said that he alternated the ethnic composition between the Hispanics and the Gauls across the front. So you'd have a unit of Iberian, uh, Hispanics. Then you'd have some Celtiberians who are Gauls, and then you'd move on and you'd be intermingling. And I don't know why they mentioned that. I don't know why it was important that they recorded that, but it, it was part of Hannibal's plan. And then a note here, Hannibal and his brother Mago are going to be in the center of the line. So they are with the infantry, with the Celts, with the Gauls. They're in the front line. So what, what what's interesting to me, and maybe we'll talk about this um, in, in a bit here as well. So they they have their non-African, non-native Carthaginian people the in the center of the line, the yep. most important part here. You know, yep. you have people that have no allegiance to Carthage other than being mercenaries. Um, and at the same time, you put uh, Hannibal and his brother right in the middle as well. Um, and you put he put his strongest uh, infantry folks, the Africans, the the Libyans, the Libyans, yeah, the Libyans on the wings, which yeah. is is super interesting because and they were remember, very remember, deep, right? Right, they were really they were really narrow and they were super deep. They were really narrow and super deep. And remember, the Romans are trying to punch through the center, and so right. one would think that you would want your strongest and best men in the center, uh, but according to the Romans, that's not what. Uh, according to the Roman historians, that's not what he did, uh, but he did it for a very specific reason. And we're going to be talking about that in a well, bit. And Sam, that's that's interesting though, because you know the Romans claim that the placement was chosen for because these guys were more expendable and unreliable. But think of it this way: his plan includes a slow and disciplined withdrawal. That's right. That's right. And so I would not, you know, if I was Hannibal, I would not leave that up to chance. If that right. line breaks, the battle's over. So right. I, I don't know. I don't think there was an undisciplined soldier in his army at this time. I think that was the thing that Hannibal had for him. Like he had After trained these guys three for years. three years. Right? Yeah. Like there was not a, there was not a weak spot in Hannibal's army right now. Absolutely. And think of the confidence, think of the confidence of these soldiers who have time and again, gone into battle with Hannibal and his brothers right. and come out victorious. And here right. he is standing in the center of the line with his men if I'm sitting there in the center of the line, oh, I'm sure as heck going to yeah. be fighting hard for right. him because he's there right next to me. You know, we talked about the Battle of Trebia and the Battle of Lake Tresemene and how Hannibal used deception and trickery basically to like lure the Romans to a trap. There wasn't a lot of like space. Like there wasn't like, you know, the hidden little stream with overgrown bushes that he could hide, uh, you know, a legion of Numidians in. But he like this probably his greatest deception effort here. Right. Like. He had a front to the Romans, right? And remember, like, right, there's no overhead, like, aerial reconnaissance, right? So the Romans are looking at the Carthaginian line on the ground. You know, they might be on a horse. They're on a horse, but they're, like, looking on the ground. And so all they see is this line of Carthaginians in front of them without knowing that the center of Hannibal's army is very shallow and very weak. And this, this Libyan line, like, it's, these two columns of Libyans are super strong and really deep. 
But you can't see that from the ground. And not only that, not only what you can't see from the ground is that Hannibal actually arrays his line in almost a a crescent facing, to, yeah. like bowing out, bulging. A convex arc that's facing the Romans, yeah. Uh, yeah, facing towards the Romans. And yeah. so like Bjorn had mentioned, his strategy was this center that the Romans are trying to break through, we are going to you know tactfully retreat yeah. take a step back every now and then and that line is eventually going to continue to bow back but it's not going to break yeah mm. so not only do you have the you know the weaker in quotes because there's some real yeah. some real weaker was definitely there. in quotes they're not there a lot less um, soldiers there Right, so you have a lot infantry. of soldiers, but you have Hannibal and his brother in the middle as well. So they got to yeah. be the ones that are saying, "We are holding this line. We are not going to die in the center." Like this is this is the this is the crux of of what we're doing here. So while Hannibal and his brother Mago are in the center, his other brother, the other brother Hasdrubal, leads the Hispanic and the Gauls uh, cavalry on the left of the Carthaginian army, and that's going to be uh, by the river, and then. Hannibal's going to prevent this flank from being overlapped by more numerous Romans. So Hasdrubal's got six or 7,000 cavalry. And then you've got Hanno is on the right, and he's got about three or 4,000 Numidians. Okay, so we've got, we've got a serious amount of cavalry on both flanks. And their whole plan is that the cavalry is going to defeat the weaker Roman cavalry, swing around, attack the Roman infantry's rear, uh, well, the more veteran African troops are then going to press in from the flanks. It's going to be a stunning victory for the Carthaginians if this trap is going to be able to spring shut at the appropriate time. That was a deployment. Let's jump actually into the battle now. Uh, so I have like here like phase one for the light infantry. So the Roman Velites had a superior numerical advantage uh, over the Carthaginian like light infantry. Uh at the Battle of Electrabia and Tresemene, Carthaginian light infantry easily handled any Roman velites that were thrown their way. Uh, but it seems like the Romans threw enough of these light infantry into the fold here where there was some really good standoff where there wasn't a lot of any, any advantage gained um, from each other. So uh, they skirmished for a time and then they retreated back through the heavy infantry. There is one important note here, though. There may have been a potential catastrophic casualty caused by these light infantry. A Balearic slinger may have hit Consul Aemilius Paulus, who was riding with the Roman citizen cavalry on the right side of the Roman line, in the head with a projectile, causing him and his guard to dismount and leave the battle. This was only stated in the Livy source, not in Polybius, but we have here like the slingers potentially dealing a major casualty early in the battle to one of the consuls, one of the leaders of the Roman army. Uh, on the on the Romans right side in the cavalry, so it is interesting because I believe it was Polybius that uh, uh, Paulus's family had bankrolled. So it's mm. interesting that he would have left that out. You know, yeah. maybe it looks a little embarrassing. So, absolutely. From there, like I, I, I think what happens is, you know, if that actually happens, they see like Paulus getting hit, and Hasdrubal sees an opportunity. So he gets his Punic cavalry into the mix, right? So he's got the Spanish and the Gallic cavalry, basically the shock troops of the Punic army. Uh, they drove straight into the Roman cavalry. And Bjorn, what you say? Uh, Hasdrubal had like a two-to-one advantage on horse strength? Yep, yep. Definitely overpowered when it yeah. comes to cavalry. Super underpowered when it comes to infantry. Yeah. 
So they just like, and there's no room to wheel and maneuver here. Like, so they're just like, we're going to go headlong into these Romans. And then Plutarch states that because Paulus and his guard dismounted after Paulus got hit in the head, uh, some of the other Roman cavalry assumed that a general order had been given out to dismount. Because remember in the earlier episode, uh, we talked about how Roman cavalry likes to get off their horse and fight on foot for some reason. So, so, so they see like, oh, oh. the council's getting off his horse. It's time for us to get off our horses. As soon as Hasdrubal and his two uh, cavalry forces rush into them, uh, this was considered a bad move. Uh, and they would be completely annihilated by the Carthaginians. And to make matters worse for Rome here, a lot of Roman senators participate in this fight because they thought there'd be a lot of glory to be won uh, for Rome at this battle. Cause they, they have this huge army. How could they lose to Hannibal? Right. Uh, but a lot of them died here uh, because they got off their horses. It's unclear here. If Paulus died, Libby says he does, but Paulus either dies here or he dies later in the battle. So Paulus does not survive the day. Um, and then instead of pursuing any of the fleeing Romans, Hasdrubal pulls up, reforms his horses and rests uh, for use later in the battle. So that's like, you know, the pre-battle. So like, this is like battle kicks off. We have the Velites and then the cavalry. Then the infantry gets into the fight. Most people in these ancient battles, like they die. They don't die in the battle. They die in the route. You know, so when you see your enemy turning and running, that's like you're you're chomping at the bit. You're licking your chops. You are, you you want to go and kill them. So for, for Hasdrubal to halt and reform his line and rest so that they'll be effective yeah, later like, in the battle. Just it's incredible. even more impressive because you know, remember when we talked about Marathon, right? That's when a lot of the Persians died. It was when the Athenians charged after them while the Persians were fleeing back to their ships. And we know Hannibal and his brothers were really into Greek history, right? So they knew Marathon. Uh, some could maybe even make the argument that this battle was... Uh, very similarly uh, deployed like the Battle of Marathon, you know, tactically. So, yeah. So, all right. So all that's kind of the, the, the beginning of the battle. Now we've got the two armies are advancing towards one another. And as the two armies advance, Hannibal gradually extends the, his center line even further. So, so uh, they, what, what I have here, the numbers I have is the Punic front, 840 men wide. And then 26 deep. And they're kind of in a spread off formation. So there's a lot of space between these guys. And like Sam said earlier, they're in this like convex arc that's facing towards the Romans. So only like the Romans march in a very disciplined straight line forward, hit the the front line of the Punics. Uh, but they only hit this really like the, the tip of the arc uh, is what gets comes into contact uh, initially. Well, and then the question is, so for listeners, he, they're going to deploy as a crescent, it's going to be curving out towards the Romans in the middle with the African troops on the flanks. Okay. Now the question is why in the world would you have a formation that looks like a crescent? One, one argument would be that it was to break the forward momentum of the Roman infantry uh, and delay its advance before other developments uh, allowed Hannibal to kind of deploy his uh, African infantry more effectively. So you have, you have your crescent facing towards the Romans and you're going to withdraw in a way in which you're then going to have the crescent bowed backwards. So instead convex, now, yeah. you know, it's concave. Concave. So we were right. concave, we're convex. We're convex, we were convex. And then we con- yep. <laughs> so the, the reason, one of the reasons I think Hannibal did this was because he wanted the Romans to feel comfortable. He wanted them to feel like we're pushing them back. We're pushing them back. We're pushing them back. Even though the line's not breaking, if you're, if you're convex, <laughs> convex, <yep. laughs> con- convex, 
if you're yeah, if you're convex towards your towards your opponent, you have a lot more space to back up before you actually before your line is exhausted, right? So he's giving the Romans more uh, more of a sense of hey, we're 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 making small victories here. We're pushing through. We're about to break through. We're about to break through. We just need to push a little bit more. Push well, a little at the bit same more. time, never being in a position to break through. We we talked about like the Romans will throw these these pilium, the you know these, these short javelins, and if they all throw them at the same time, and only a small amount of the small force of the punics are in contact only a small amount of people are even in range of these javelins you can only throw them so far right so if they like it, it, it's just a way to protect your forces when you know like you're uh you have less less numerical numbers in the middle so it could just be a, protect, a protective thing for hannibal too here but it's probably a mix of a bunch of different things so we've got the infantry advancing and then we've got this cavalry battle that's happening on one of the flanks on the other flank it's more of like a a gentlemanly conflict that's going on where the Romans and the Numidians are actually just kind of keeping each other occupied. So Hasdrubal, he's on the other side. He's on, he's with the, the Gauls, uh, the Celts and the Hispanics, and they're actually fighting a fierce battle. He's going to be able to defeat those dudes. And then he's actually going to swing around and attempt to assist in, in fighting the Romans with what the Numidians are doing. So this is where, Consul Terentius Varro is fighting from. So he is the commander of the Roman army for the day. He's fighting in the Allied cavalry on the Roman left flank. So they're fighting the Numidians. Uh, I actually have this little thing from Livy, and he says at this moment, the Numidians fainted to surrender to the Romans. Like, oh, okay, you got us. We're going to surrender. And then as soon as that happens, Hasdrubal comes screaming across the rear of the Roman legions uh, and attacks Varro from the rear. What's super funny about this is far and away the Numidians are the best cavalry out of everyone here. You could like they they, they are another mercenary force for the Carthaginians, but out of everyone on the battlefield, the Carthaginian, Roman, whoever else, the Numidians are by far the best cavalrymen out there on the day. And surprise, uh, the Numidians will not always be with Hannibal. And as a rule of thumb, Hannibal wins battles where he has the Numidians and loses battles where he does not have the Numidians. If you look at his record, it's super interesting. And so with these, Bjorn, you said that they were having uh, sort of a gentlemanly encounter. The Numidians were just toying with them, keeping them busy, keeping that that cavalry force from going to maybe uh, reinforce another flank or help the other cavalry force. They were just keeping them busy. They were just, they were just delaying so, them from doing yeah, anything else. The Roman cavalry just disintegrates here under this rearward attack from Hasdrubal. Uh, I have only 300 Romans survive that. And they started, what were they? I, I think I have uh, 6,000 6, Romans. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I have, I have 3,600, 6, but uh, yeah. They had 6,000 total. Force. So they had 3,600 to the left, and they had like 2,400 on the right. Yeah, so like so 3,600 allied cavalry on the left, and only 300 of them survived, including Varro, uh, who was able to escape to nearby Venusia. The infantry at this point in time, they're going to make contact. And I kind of wanted to stop and just kind of set the stage because many of us, we have a picture in our mind of what battles look like. And and this is a different scenario entirely. Guys are are basically looking, they can smell the breath of the dude that they're fighting against. They're within they're within an arm's distance of this person, it locked in a in a life and death situation. And remember now, how we talked about how the Romans like to fight, right? They have a scutum in the left hand and they have their gladius in the right, right? So they're punching and then they're stabbing. Punching and stabbing. And they're doing that all day. You are literally you're not you're not killing your your enemy from 300 meters. You are a two foot long, very sharp, sharp sword. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 
it's it's serial killer stuff is what it is. Not if that's not enough, like the the idea and the concept of facing off one on one or sometimes three on one, depending on uh, the wind is blowing the the dust into the Romans' faces. So good on Hannibal for being positioned in a way in which the dust blows into the faces of the Romans, and at the same time the sun is in the Romans' eyes as they're fighting. Now, imagine you're in this situation, not only that, but you're thirsty uh, because of the fact that Hannibal's attack on the water camp the previous day, there's a massive amount of noise. Everyone, every which way is making as much noise as they can, whether they're just yelling or screaming. Someone's got their arm cut off. That's going to be a loud situation for them as well. Yeah. Uh, And then then on top of it, these soldiers are going into the battle uh, unrested. Remember, they marched for two days to get to this battle, and then they didn't fight one day and they fought the next morning. So the other thing that I wanted to mention on that, Bjorn, I'm glad you're setting the stage here. Brendan had talked about it in the in the weather uh, section, but the dust, you have 150,000 people in here. And like I said, you're, you're locking arms with them, smelling their breath and it's dusty. You can barely see two feet. It's in, front in your, of your eyes. Face. It's in your mouth. Like, it's in your it, nose. It's, I actually have, a, I actually have a, uh, an interesting take that I wanted to talk to you guys about. So in, in relation to the dust and actually the Libyans on the wings of Hannibal's infantry line, um, I, so the, the, there were two sources I, 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 I researched for, for this. One of them just had the, the Libyans on the wings ready to fight. Another source, though, which was super interesting, Hannibal, knowing that dust was going to be a factor, he had the Libyans sort of um, hiding in plain sight, if you will, um, yeah, and, and waiting for the opportune time to close the door on either side of the flanks um, and, and completely encircle the Romans. Want to hear what you guys... What I you think, guys think, you know, like the, the Libyans that are on the edge, right? So the ones that are on the front edge and the ones that are on the edge uh, where the Romans are pushing into. Like, I think those guys were kind of fighting, but I don't think Hannibal wanted them to become decisively engaged. So I think they were like, you know, doing self-defense, but they weren't necessarily like trying to kill Romans at this point. Yeah, this the whole concept of this is that the Romans thought they were winning. The Romans were advancing. They thought they were pushing their opponents back. What they didn't realize is that the dudes in the center were being pushed back at a rate that exceeded the guys on the wings. And so before the Romans had a chance to even see what was happening, they had already encircled themselves. This was a voluntary encirclement on right. the point of the Romans. Well, and re- remember, Paulus is probably maybe dead at this point. Varro has left. Like, there are like local commanders, but they can't see what's going on. Like they're in the dust and they're on the ground. Like they don't have radios. Uh, they can't hear anything. It's super loud. Uh, yeah. So like you can't, like, you have no idea what's actually happening. And it's dusty and you're gaining ground. You're pushing the Carthaginians back. You're, you continue to walk forward. Like you think you're doing good. Um, yeah, they they yeah, trapped themselves. The, the other point I want to make here too, Bjorn, you may have talked about this both in the marathon and the Hastings episodes. Everyone go back and listen to those. I thought they were, those are fun, fun talks. Um, this wasn't just constant fighting throughout the day, right? Like they didn't start in the morning at, you know, nine in the morning and then fight all the way until 1700, right? They would fight, like, it was like a boxing match, right? So you, you'd fight for, you know, 90 to 120 seconds, what, what, maybe eight minutes, but it'd be a amount of time. Then you get tired and then there'd be moments of calm. There'd be moments of recovery. Uh, and then you have this rest period and then you get back to fighting again, right? And then you'd switch out uh, the different maniples. Uh, you bring in fresh troops, uh, but the rest periods would get longer through the day, right? Like you're, it's a, like a slogging long boxing match. Uh, and that's like how these battles were fought. But even still, like there's still that confusion that was here. And, you know, they'd be like spitting like curses at each other and trash talking to each other. Uh, it kind of like, you know, like a football match, right? Like you have like intense periods of a play 
And then, oh, we have to go back and huddle up and get the play, the next play. And then let's get back to the line and fight again, right? And offensive, defensive lines yelling at each other, uh, talking about each other's mamas, all that good stuff. Uh, but, like, and I think Hannibal used that to his advantage, right? Like, all right, let's, like, then we'll start slowly stepping back and we'll, you know, turn that convex arc into a concave arc, let the Romans know that they're, that they're quote-unquote winning here, uh, and pull them into this perfect trap that the fox has set. Yeah, and that's what that's exactly what happened. So uh, quickly, the skirmishers meet on the battlefield first. They withdraw behind their infantry as the infantry advances. The Roman heavy infantry attacks. Hannibal stands with his men in the weak center, holds them together in a controlled retreat. The crescent of the Hispanic and Gallic troops buckles inward as they gradually withdraw step by step. Knowing the superiority of the Roman infantry, Hannibal had instructed his infantry to withdraw deliberately, creating an even tighter semicircle around the attacking Roman forces. So by doing this, he'd turn the strength of the Roman infantry into a weakness. While their front ranks were gradually advancing, the bulk of the Roman troops began to lose their cohesion as troops from the reserve lines advanced into the growing gaps. Soon, they're compact together so closely that they had little space in which to wield their weapons. In pressing so far forward in their desire to destroy the retreating and seemingly collapsing line of the Hispanic and Gallic troops, the Romans had ignored maybe because of the dust, maybe through their frantic uh, thirst for victory, the African troops that stood uncommitted on the projecting ends uh, that are now reverse crescent. This also gave the Carthaginian cavalry time to drive the Roman cavalry off on both flanks and attack the Roman center in the rear. The Roman infantry, now stripped of protection on both of its flanks, forms a wedge that drove deeper and deeper into the Carthaginian semicircle, driving itself into an alley straight into the trap. The African infantry is on the wings. At this decisive point, Hannibal orders his African infantry to turn inwards and advance against the Roman flanks. He's created a box and the Romans will not be able to get out of this box. So here's my question to you guys, because I'm having a hard time doing this myself or figuring this out myself. If Hannibal is in the center of the lines, how does he order his troops to turn inward and attack? I'm, I'm having a hard time. If this battlefield's 1.3 miles, how does he do it? He doesn't have radios. Sam, I definitely want to hear your thoughts on this, uh, especially like with your your command experience. Yeah. I like it has to, like this was the plan the whole time, right? Like Hannibal had Hannibal knew what he wanted, and it, right. but it wasn't in his head, right? He told Mago, he told Hasdrubal, he told Hanno, he told the leaders of the Libyans and the Gauls and the Spaniards uh, what the plan was, right? So like we are going to pull the Romans in, and at a certain time, the Libyan, you're going to turn in and you're going to squeeze the Romans from the sides. And maybe he used some sort of flag system or like some sort of like bugle call or something. Uh, but he, like, there was a, probably, he probably gave a call somehow to have them go in. But Sam, like, what do you, what do you think? What I think happened is it was probably conditions based. Um, you know, when, when that when the center of that line reaches a certain point, you know, that's when, that's when you close in or, um, you know, when you see the cavalry, cause they knew, that Hasdrubal with his cavalry was going to need time to rest because they just chase everybody off. When you see that cavalry coming, close in. So it was probably some sort of conditions based. Maybe it was even time. Um, who knows? But I think that it was it was an order that had been previously given that all of his subordinate commanders knew and knew well. Um, and they, they they probably rehearsed it just like we do rehearsals all the time. 
Um, and I, I, yeah, I that, so. that's how I believe he pulled that off. And, and that one more, moment. more kudos to the, to the leaders that he has underneath him. And the fact that they're able to successfully orchestrate this and spring the trap at a perfect time in which complete disaster ensues upon the Romans. Oh man. And I, I was just like, I was thinking of like, you know, Hasdrubal in his, you know, hit, he hits the allied cavalry and then he like swings back around and then he charges into the rear of the Roman legion. And that was like where all the light infantry, that's where the Velites were, right? Like they had retreated back behind the Triarii. And so now like you have these like, and I don't know, do you know how old these guys are? Like they must've been like in their teens, right? Like 16, 17, 18 year old kids. The Velites or the Hastanis? Yeah, the yes, The Velites are going to be the young, the youngest of them. They're going to hand them some javelins. So these like dudes are in their teens. Like we're talking like in teenage years probably, right? Yeah. Yep. Like super, like, and uh, so O'Connell in his book says like the average weight of a Roman man was 130 pounds during this time. So think like a 16 year old kid, like maybe pushing 100 with no armor. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, you, and even, also, you have all these huge horses riding up at you with, uh, you know, these Gallic dudes with huge spears. And they're like in mail. Like these guys are like heavily armored cavalry. Uh, and it's a crap. Right, and, and they just crash into you, and like so. Four years. Uh, Okawa talks about how like these guys have they are not organized, they have no armor, and they basically like they have nowhere to go, right? Because it's just the horses in front of them, and then they have the triarii behind them, and so they start pushing into the triarii, who then push into the principes, who then push into the hostati, and so you know, like we talked about last episode, the Romans like to have like the six foot square, right? We want to do this individual combat, hit with scudum, hit with the gladius. But now it's like, oh man, like you're gonna say, like they start to get compressed. It's like, oh man, I can't punch. Yeah. Oh crap, right. I, I can't stab anymore. Oh, who's this guy? Oh, there's a guy right behind me. I can't move. And then like, and then all of a sudden, like I can't you, even move like, my arms. on the right yeah. side. You like your buddy's like starts to scream. You're like, what's going on? And like you have these Libyans like turning at you. And like then that just like ripples through the le- the you know this quadruple consular army, just terror filled. Like you're getting crushed in here and. Uh, we're talking like 70,000 Romans squeezed in heavy cavalry to the rear. You have the Spanish and the Gauls who have reformed in the front. Then you have two columns of heavily armored Libyan infantry squeezing you on the sides. Uh, this is uh, this is not a good spot for the Romans. This is a this bad is, day. This is a bad day. Like you, you, like you said, you can't move your arms like, and your arms are how you fight, you know, and you can't move them. And not only that, like if you're in the middle here, and you like you don't know what's going on. You're getting compressed on all sides. It's like, what is happening? You know, like you. Polybius uh, says you this. Wouldn't even know uh, the Romans, as long as they could turn and present a face on every side to the enemy, held out. But as the outer ranks continued to fall, the rest were gradually huddled in and surrounded. They finally were all killed where they stood. That's wild. I I, I heard some accounts where Romans who knew that like they they were trapped. And the killing was just going on. Remember, you're killing 70,000 people. I think they ended up taking 10,000 uh, POWs. But So you're killing no, about 60,000 10, people by were hand. captured after the battle. They killed almost all those 70,000. Oh, my God. So, But they're doing this killing by hand. So, A, it's going to take a bunch of time. B, if it's taking a bunch of time and you're in the middle, you're going to be the last one to go. So I, 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 I read some accounts where people would literally so – Roman soldiers would dig holes – in the ground, put their head in the in the in the ground and bury their head in an effort to suffocate themselves. Just create like, would you want to do that? Well, that's or wait what makes it so to difficult to, to conceptualize here. You have mass chaos. I get it. There's mass panic. I get it. 
But in the end, you're, you know, you can't just stand there. And the Carthaginians, the Carthaginians are, their sword arms are aching from overuse by the end of this day. Like it's hard to fathom this. Yeah, These guys so, are back like sardines. Uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman wrote a book called On Killing. And he talks about like when you're in a psychological situation like this, that you kind of like don't know what's happening and you like give up and you don't resist anymore. And you kind of turn to this, like you just wait for it to happen. And I think like, you know, after all this terror, a lot of Romans just kind of let it come and we're waiting for it to happen. Uh, the, like Hannibal's men turned from soldiers into executioners here. Uh, and it, it got to the point where uh, the vast majority of Romans here took the sword without resistance just waiting for death to come. And Sam, like you said, like, yeah, the stories of them putting their heads in the sand to suffocate themselves because that's a better option than waiting for a gall to stab you in the stomach. But with that being said, there were people who kept their heads were. and were there able were. to to escape. So they think that 14,000 Roman troops managed to escape, including Scipio Africanus, who managed to in- escape the encirclement. He had 500 men with him. They basically cut their way through the their enemies. So it it was possible. It was possible. But, but it, it, like this place, this to me, like reading the account of this, it's just like hell on earth, right? You're packed them together. 70,000 Romans plus what, what was it? 40 or 50,000 uh, Allies, yeah. Uh, Carthage, you know, no, that was all, yeah. But you're talking like, over 100,000 people in this little area, right? So you're just packed in there. You can't move. There's metal clanging everywhere. It's loud, right? Like, think like when you hear like, you know, stories of hell, it's like gnashing of teeth and screaming. Like, that's what it sounds like. Men like screaming all over the place, dying. Uh, you yeah. can't get a foothold because the ground is covered in blood and human viscera. You can't, you can't move. You're sliding all over the place. And then the smell is ungodly. Think of all the concentrated bodily functions that are happening at this time as someone releases their spirit, right? This is the worst place in the world. Oh, my God. It definitely up there. Definitely in the top five of worst places well, to be. And we, in we all don't know history. exactly how many people died, how many were captured. Uh, Polybius writes that the Romans and the Allied infantry, uh, 70,000 were killed, 10,000 captured, perhaps 3,000 survived. But Livy, he's got a different idea. He says 45,000. Uh, and 500 died, 2,700 horse uh, were slain. But then we've got modern historians who reject those figures. Um, some of them are willing to accept Livy's a little bit more, but we've got a lot of uh, way lower estimates. So like in 1891, there was a historian who proposed that Rome only lost about 10 to 16,000. And then in 1990, we had a, a historian, Samuels, uh, regards Livy's figure as far too high on the grounds that the cavalry would have been inadequate to prevent the Roman infantry escaping to the rear. So he doubts that Hannibal ever wanted a high death toll as much as the army consisted of Italians whom he hoped to win as allies. Uh, but we, so we don't really know. We've got some really wide open estimates. I, I might be willing to accept those numbers, but if I'm going to do that, then I got to believe that maybe the Romans didn't field 90,000 people, you know, like, I mean, by all accounts, oh, yeah. this was. Oh, no, a, there's no doubt about bath. it. It was a bloodbath regardless. Yeah, Polybius and Livy. So Polybius was a Greek and Livy, but he was like a Roman living Greek and Livy was a Roman. And they both put up huge numbers here. I don't know. Like, it, I don't know. Is it good or bad for oh, Roman it's super PR bad. to say we lost it's a bunch of people? 
Because it could be no question. Yeah, 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 Pierre. That 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 is interesting. And I think historians could talk about this ad nauseum. Uh, I think we can like a lot of people died here. I think. Yeah, that conclusion. A whole heck of a lot of Romans died, and not a lot of Carthaginians died. So Livy says that Hannibal lost about eight thousand of his bravest men, and then uh, Polybius writes that it was about five thousand seven hundred who died. So. Right after the battle, Romans complete disarray. Their best armies in the peninsula had been destroyed, and they had few remnants that were severely demoralized. Bjorn, I want to restate the quote that you said last uh, episode. So following the battle, Maharbal, one of Hannibal's cavalry leaders, thought they must take advantage of the opportunity to march on Rome. Livia writes that Maharbal says this to Hannibal, follow me. I will go first with the cavalry, and the Romans may know that you are there before they know you are coming. Hannibal did not make an immediate decision. So Maharbal replies, so the gods haven't given everything to one man. You know how to win a victory, Hannibal, but you don't know how to use one. So Hannibal does not decide to attack Rome here. And he instead decides to peel away Roman allies in the Italian countryside. Is this the part of the podcast where I refuse to accept this slander? Not yet. Save that, Sam. Save that for later. Let's finish up this. We'll, oh, get to the, we'll get the aftermath finished, then we'll conclude. So put a pin in Brendan's comment there. That was an excellent quote. Um, but I wanted to real quick talk about that within just three campaigning seasons of about 20 months, Rome had lost one-fifth, about 150,000 of its entire population of male citizens over 17 years of age. So understandably- It's, it's crazy that Rome is this big by this point. Hey, yeah. Like that's a lot right. of men. Well, and furthermore, the morale, as you can expect, um, was just absolutely in the tanks to the point where uh, Hannibal's actually going to have a number of southern Italian provinces join his cause. So the city of Capua, uh, Tarentum, those two are going to join his cause. He's going to have Capua was huge, and it was like Capua a very like wealthy too. area of you know they're a Roman ally at the point at that point, uh, and they were yeah they had a ton of money there. Yeah, Livy basically says that, uh, you know, there were a lot of people prior to this who were loyal, completely loyal to Rome before that fateful day. Their loyalty remained unshaken. Now it began to waver for the simple reason that they despaired of Roman power. So they're worried. Uh, following the battle, you're going to see Sicily's Greek cities rise in rebellion against the Romans. You're going to see the Macedonian King Philip V pledge his support to Hannibal. Initiating this is a, a very f- Greek thing to do, right? Oh, the tides of power are turning. Uh, I'm going to throw it with Hannibal. He's definitely going to take care of these Romans. It was purely opportunistic because uh, Philip V wanted just to take territory. But this initiates the, the first Macedonian War. Hannibal secures an alliance with the new king of, si- of, of Syracuse. Uh, the only independent king left in Sicily. So after this battle, you are seeing the flags flock to Hannibal. And it's crazy to think that in the end, the Romans will win this war. I just, I keep, like, whenever you say that, I keep thinking of that song lyric, in the end, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so Lincoln so, Park. Lincoln Park. <laughs> so they're right talking about Hannibal and they the battle of Kanai. Yeah. They must have. That's favorite exactly favorite history songs. So Hannibal decides not to march on Rome. Instead, he sends a delegation to negotiate a peace treaty with the Senate on moderate terms. Bjorn, why do you why do you think that is? Is it because he like didn't think he had the, the strength to uh, to actually attack Rome? You know, Rome's very fortified, right? He didn't have any siege engines. He doesn't have supply. So was it was it was that the decision there? 
So Robert O'Connell, he writes that, in fact, there were many good reasons for not marching on Rome uh, and only one good reason for going. Oh. Okay. Oh, so essentially, the the only good reason for marching on Rome was the fact that as uh, Montgomery Field Marshal Montgomery said later on, he says, uh, Hannibal's single chance of winning the larger war was to begin marching his army towards Rome. In the end, it still would have been a long shot, but it was his only shot. This is us sitting here today, you know, 2000 years later. Yeah. Playing Monday morning general, right? Like, yeah. All right. So I, 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 I see that side of the argument. I do, but you got to understand. So first of all, Hannibal's strategy was never to conquer, was, was never to like besiege Rome and, and, you know, knock down all the buildings and kill all the people. He wanted to do exactly what he's doing right here. Uh, make allies of the other Italians, bring them into Carthage. Cause Carthage was never out to right. conquer. They were just out to make so alliances. Th- I think this gets the point. Hannibal is a tactical genius. Is he a strategic one? Does Hannibal have a strategy for the Punic War? He's trying to get all these Italian allies, which he's doing. That is his strategy. That what he, that's what he wants to do. Furthermore, to what, if you to what are end? going to what is, the, what, is, what is Hannibal's end state for the Second Punic War? Think, think, but think about what Hannibal's doing right now. He is traipsing. He's traipsing throughout Italy. He's going to be traipsing throughout Italy for about twenty years. And how he's just living the military camp life, right? So he is living off the land. He is <clears throat> raiding granaries. You know, he's doing whatever he needs to do. That's was uh, the Kanai being a supply depot was a big part of the reason why he he went there was because he needed the supplies to continue what he was doing. And what he was doing was gaining Italian allies. If you go besiege Rome, you're now stuck in one place. Right, so but that's that, that yes, it's going to be hard on Rome, but it's going to the be the center of gravity of the Roman and or Roman Republic is at this time, right? Like that is how you like the the strategy. Looking back on it now, two thousand some years ago, like twenty five hundred years ago, uh, that strategy doesn't play out because he doesn't right. win the war. I don't. I don't. I don't think he could. Like Rome would have been able to hold on to a siege for. I don't know. In my mind, I'm I'm pulling this out of my ass, but probably like five years they could have held on to a siege within the city. I don't think Hannibal could have supported forty thousand guys. So it's important in one to spot for take five note years. of the fact that uh, Hannibal sustained casualties after the Battle of Cannae. He is not receiving reinforcements to his own personal army at a rate that is the same as the Romans, and uh, I mean he's only going to get a a pittance uh, from the car from Carthage itself. He's basically left hanging out to dry. And I think it has a lot to do with the politics of the time in Carthage, that when you are the one successful yeah, person absolutely. fighting in this campaign, people start to question. They say, he Oh no, received 4,000 reinforcements for the whole war in 20 years. He well, gets 20, 4, cavalry. It's understandable from the other Car- Carthaginians, Point because right, they didn't care about Italy. They cared about Spain. They cared about Sardinia, and they cared right. about Sicily. That's all they cared well, about. They what, saw, they saw Hannibal, Hannibal's adventure as an adventure. Like that's all right. it was. It wasn't a strategic aim for the Carthaginian Empire. But what happens after Hannibal? You know, as let's pretend we're politicians in Carthage, because remember they had they had political leaders, and then they had military generals. Right? Hannibal's a general. But what happens if the political leaders successfully support Hannibal in his invasion? They beat the Romans through uh, the extra support that Hannibal's getting and, and Hannibal's tactical genius. They win. Hannibal comes home. What happens to you as a political leader? The general then takes over. The same that thing is, that happens to the Roman so Republic popular. when Julius Caesar comes home. Exactly the exact same thing occurs. And so I'm thinking that the reason why he only got 4,000 dudes to support him is because those other guys, they were looking out for their jobs. 
And as a result, Hannibal got hung out to dry. I don't think I, I'm on Sam's. I'm, I'm with Sam here. I don't think Hannibal had the forces necessary. Understand that at this point in time, Rome is surrounded by a wall. They've got excellent defenses. And remember through the fall of Constantinople, where it was 7,000 dudes who were who are protecting the walls of Constantinople, it doesn't take a lot of Romans to protect these walls. It takes a whole heck of a lot of Carthaginians to capture those walls. And so uh, not only that, he's going to have to sustain his troops in a stagnant location. Right now, he's on the move, and he'll continue to move for the next 20 years, going from one location to the next like a locust. But if you position your army and camp them and besiege the city of Rome, you now have to bring your supplies and you will continually degrade the value of the land that is supporting you through the entirety of the siege. Sieges are dangerous. They are, they are dangerous. But like the way that Hannibal conducts the rest of this war is dangerous. It doesn't ever get him to the point. He ends up on the boot of Italy with nothing. And he leaves Italy in disgrace at the end of his 15 or 20 year adventure. So my... But how do, how does Rome do that though? And I want to touch on that. Just it, it'll be very brief. It's super interesting because Hannibal. We talked about it. Hannibal's strategy was to get all these other Italian cities like Capua and Syracuse, like to get them to come be allies with Carthage. But what does that do? That also like yes, it's your ally, but now it's also a liability. So these Roman legions and now smaller forces because they don't want to lose eighty thousand guys in a day again. They're going to attack these these now Carthaginian allied their their italian cities but allied to carthage the roman legions are going to attack them and carthage as their ally is going to have to go defend them <clears throat> so now rather than going from place to place conquering now hannibal has to go from place to place defending and so he it's it's yeah, sort of become, like, and it, i think that, what that hannibal was trying out. to do was ally with these italian city states now that aren't allied with rome and try to pull like he did with you know the cisalpine gauls right try to pull them into the carthaginian army not, I don't think a single one did that. Like, there was no Capuans inside of the Punic army. There was no Tarentiniums in the army, right? He doesn't pull any of these tribes or cities into his army. And so, he, like, Hannibal had a distinct lack of understanding of what the, soci what the social situation in the Italian peninsula was like during this time. And I think that's where my, I was getting to my point where it's like, I just don't think, I, I think Hannibal's a tactical genius for sure. Like, you can't, probably one of the best that there has ever been. Uh, but strategically, he didn't know how to win a war like like uh, uh, that guy, like Maharbal said, right? And I think that gets to the point. Where, like we talk about strategy, like what is the end point? I think you know, based on our first episode, it sounds like Hannibal attacked Rome because he wanted to get revenge for his dad for the first Punic War. And so, what was that? Was the was Kanai the point? Like, was the point to butcher Romans or Italians? Yeah, maybe the point was just to kill if as that many was Romans the, If as that can. was the case, he wouldn't have sent a delegation to negotiate peace. This is what is so impressive to me. The Romans have the ability to suffer defeat after defeat after defeat. And in instances in the first Punic War, their navy sank, so they built another one. And that navy sank, so they built another one. The Romans have this amazing ability to suffer a defeat and say, well, that wasn't good. Let's go again. And so instead, you know, no one of, ever attacks the Roman center of gravity. The Roman center of gravity is Rome. That's where the Senate is. That's where the all the you know councils are. That's where everything is. So you attack Rome, you cut off the head of the snake, then you can win a war against Rome. Nobody ever does that until the fall of the Western Roman Empire. 
I know that. You could have need siege engines. But you've lost 150,000 men. You've lost 20% of your male population. And again, the Romans redouble their effort. They declare full mobilization. That's what I'm saying. So you go to Rome, you take away the military leadership. They can't raise more legions. Because I think like the rest of this war, they raised like 25 new legions. Over right. the course of well, the Second Punic War. And you know, where, you know where most of those dudes came from, Brendan? They came from Rome. Rome. And so if you march on Rome, then, oh, guess what? We're going to declare full mobilization of male Roman population. We're going to raise the legions. I, I, think, like, I think to O'Connell's point, though, this was like a, it was a long shot to siege Rome and to try to conquer the city. But it was the only shot. Yeah, you're right. It was the only Rome, shot. They didn't take like, it. Like, exactly what you said. Like Rome could rebuild. Rome wasn't built in a day, but uh, the Romans won the Second Punic Empire in like 15 years. But I, I think that if Hannibal's assumptions about what the Italian allies would be able to provide to a Carthaginian army was correct, if his assumptions were correct, then maybe he would have, you know, you know what I mean? But again, that gets back to you need to have an understanding of, of the political situation and the social situation where you're going to be operating. Whereas like, so like if you look on the other side, like, you know, we're not going to really get into this, but like Scipio Africanus, he was probably a Scipio before he became Africanus. Uh, he was fighting in Spain, and he basically did the same thing that Hannibal did in Italy, but he did it successfully because he understood what the Spanish tribes were about, right? They wanted money, and so you give them money, they become mercenaries, and then they'll fight against the Barkid family for you, whereas the Italians won't do that. The remainder of the war in Italy, the next, what, 15 years? The I Romans. Years. I think it was a 15-year war, years. and so I think three years to Kanai, and then... 12 years after that, I think. All right. So the remainder of the war, Romans are not going to amass any large forces under one command against Hannibal. They're going to use several independent armies, still outnumbering the Punic forces and soldiers. But the war in Italy is going to have occasional battles focused on taking strong points and constant fighting according to the Fabian strategy. All right. Don't commit everything. Be a harasser. The fine, This is going to finally force Hannibal to have a shortage of manpower. Uh, he's going to retreat. Going to go back to Africa. Going to he lose. Was actually called back to Africa. The Carthaginian elders called him back because Publius Scipio was in Carthage, and he like pulled the Numidians to his side. So okay, so Hannibal, tactical genius. Publius Scipio, strategic political genius. He pulls basically all the Carthaginian allies to his side and forces a decisive engagement against Hannibal and wins. Hannibal like doesn't have a shot here. Because you have the Numidians. Again, it all comes back to Numidian cavalry. So last thing here, guys, let's wrap it up. Uh, The legacy of Kanai. So I'm going to say that Kanai played a major role in shaping the military structure and tactical organization of the Roman Republican Army. So they're previously during this battle, they're going to be in more of a phalanx system, uh, and it's going to evolve into the maniple system. Uh, They're also going to get rid of those stupid consuls alternating days, and they're going to actually have... An individual, like, for example, Scipio Africanus, is going to make general in chief of the Roman armies in Africa uh, and was assured his role for the duration of the war, which is actually unconstitutional to the Romans. But who cares? It worked. Uh, Okay, so very interesting point here, right? Because the Romans hated kings, right? They wanted to be a republic. They wanted there to be the Senate and all of the different legislative houses. And they had the council system, right? So no single person could control the army and could control the manpower and the power of the state. But, you know, in times of these great needs, they had the dictators come up and then they allowed Scipio to do his sojourn into Africa and defeat the Carthaginians. 
but it basically sets the stage for the army to basically fall in love with the general and then follow the general wherever that you know individual wants. And Scipio basically comes as like Greek hero, you know, style of like you know Achilles. And then we talked about you know like the heroes of Marathon, like the kings of Greece. And he basically like sets the stage for there to be the fall of the Republic and the rise of Caesar and the empire. So I think I love that Hannibal basically creates a Roman empire here without Canai. Wow. They like, there is no Scipio yep. Africanus and without Scipio Africanus, there really is no Caesar or Pompey or, you know, like, or Mark Antony. Like there is none of that. Yeah. All right. I kind of, I kind of like that. I kind of like that, but the bad, no, maybe, like, you know, maybe the, the machinations of history and the wheels of history would have turned the empire to happen anyways, just because of how Roman politics were. But, you know, maybe without this catastrophic event for the Romans, Maybe it doesn't actually happen. Right. This definitely accelerated it. So does it, you know, does it, it sure may, might evolve into that, but does it evolve into that after the time of Julius Caesar? And what At the does same it look time, like Julius, Julius was Caesar? in Gaul and he was winning in Gaul on his own accord and he had his own legions, but then uh, Pompey had... Well, without, the, without the inspiration of Scipio, would he have, right? Every man, I don't know. every man is corruptible and every man, when given that opportunity, has to make a decision. Right, so, like, so like, I guess like, there was like Scipio and, or I guess Hannibal introduced cracks into the Republic and into the military system that, you know, the great men of history took advantage of. So in a way, did Hannibal succeed in dismantling <laughs> the Roman Republic? Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. I don't think he gets credit, but Hannibal's double envelopment at Cannae is often viewed as one of the greatest battlefield maneuvers in history. It's cited as the first successful use of the pincer movement within the Western world to be recorded in detail. Now, that in itself is significant to military history in that, like like uh, Sam said previously, a lot of other generals throughout time have tried to recreate that. But it's not. It's it didn't have a significant end to this war. The war still goes on. The battle is still fought. So I'm going to say that it's not significant to history. And it's not even the only time that the Romans are going to suffer a devastating defeat like this. The Battle of Arasio uh, in 105 BC. That one resulted in 120,000 Romans being killed in an almost identical double envelopment. Uh, Interesting. It's a it's a very uh, and it's interesting because mm. it's not even known very well. I had to dig really deep in order to find this, but it's the first time. It's not the last time. Maybe it's what generals aspire to today, but to history, I think it's insignificant. So interesting point, and I think here to back you up on it, maybe not being as significant as we might have thought initially. Uh, you know, at the end of the Ghost of Canai, Robert O'Connell's book, he was kind of talking about this, and he said, like for the most part these ancient armies and then into the medieval and Renaissance armies, no one really remembered Kanai. It was kind of lost to history for a time. And uh, I think some Dutch king had thought, you know, the Duke of Orange, I think, had thought about it or had read about it, uh, you know, during the Renaissance and tried to incorporate some of this. But that was like the time of guns, right? Like we started to get some firepower, some uh, black powder and all that. Uh, but like Napoleon didn't really know about Kanai, I don't think. Uh, so the first like recorded time that I think somebody actually did a major study on this was actually Schlieffen uh, after World War One. Uh, he wrote a book the year or two before he died about how great this battle of Kenai was and how strong of a military genius uh, uh, Hannibal was. And he wrote it in German, and it was translated to English during the interwar years uh, before World War Two. 
and it got into the hands of Leavenworth and the uh, Command General Staff College. And so it kind of got into like, you know, the field grade officer education for the U.S. Army. And so like uh, there's a bunch of like, so Rommel talks about, you know, wanting to have a Kanai in North Africa. Uh, so uh, and the Germans tried to do this uh, against uh, the Russians and it just never, never really worked out. Um, so, yeah. So it seemed like it really wasn't picked up again until World War Two. Hence insignificant. But Sam, since this is your battle, how about you finish up this last quote by Dwight D. Eisenhower? Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force in World War II, wrote, Every ground commander seeks the battle of annihilation, so far as conditions permit. He tries to duplicate the modern war in the classic example of Is that Kanai. possible? I don't know. With today's what we're seeing today, not so much. I don't know if like I don't know if tactically it's possible. You know, we're, we're talking about like you know a smaller battlefield, but I think maybe over a campaign or a larger operation, you might be able to do it, right? Right. Well, I mean, we, I mean, I don't know. It's. I mean, Schwarzkopf kind of says like he used this as part of his plan for you know the attack into Iraq against Saddam Hussein, but that also kind of looked like the Schlieffen plan yeah, too. So that- who knows? Right, exactly. But but Schwarzkopf can't say he modeled his attack to Iraq after Schlieffen, I don't think. (laughs) Yeah, there's a bit of a a PR issue there. But I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know enough of. I I actually should should learn more about uh, Schwarzkopf's uh, plans. But I don't think that there was a a complete encirclement that was that was planned. That was more of a you know a a flanking maneuver. I I don't know because can can I really is. It's not just a double envelopment. It's a complete encirclement, right? Because the cavalry comes in from the from the rear and everyone's trapped, you know, which, you know, again, you're licking your chops to, to, to find a situation like that. But it's so difficult, um, you know, maybe especially at the strategic level. It's it's super difficult. Yeah, I, I think like maybe you can't have another can I, but I think there's definitely learnings from Hannibal that you can take here, right? Like uh, deeply understanding your enemy is huge, right? He knew how the Romans wanted to fight. He knew he want, they wanted yeah. to pack the center. And I think understanding your specific advantages, right? Hannibal had the Dominion Cavalry. Like he knew what his advantages were. He could move fast. And then I think the third thing is deploying your tactical advantage in a way that takes advantage of your advantage and, you know, takes advantage of your opponent's disadvantage. Uh, And, you know, and develop a, a scheme of maneuver to, you know, incorporate deception but like just yeah incorporate those advantages you have so just understanding like who you are as a as an army uh and then incorporating that into the plan instead of just like we're just gonna hit these guys in the face right like hannibal's plan would not have worked if his soldiers weren't as disciplined as they were and so again it's not all is knowing your advantages and your disadvantages any closing any closing comments here brr sam good stuff guys no but i get to choose the next battle so So here's what I was thinking. I was having a really hard time. And Brendan, last time when we when we spoke last week, I I was juggling between a bunch of them because we've done battles throughout a lot of history. We've done ancient battles. We've done medieval battles. We've done 20th century battles. We've done 19th century battles. We've been all over the place. But I think there's one spot uh, that we haven't been. So I talked about uh, hopefully we wanted to do the Battle of Poltava. I wanted to do Ein Jalut. uh, But those are battles that... Uh, you know, they're, they're not as well known. And so I wanted to pick one that I think a lot of individuals know and one that is by far one of the most significant battles to all of history. And so we're going to go with the battle uh, of the sinking of the Spanish Armada in 1588. Ooh. Going back to the ocean. Okay. Ooh. All right. 
I am excited for that one. That'll be a good one. Uh, cool. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Sam, hopefully you can uh, you can join us again. We love having you. Uh, everyone, if you could, please, if you like the show, you know, go rate and review us. All those uh, mean the world to us. And if you have any comments for us or questions, we have an email address now. Uh, so feel free to email us at mondaymorninggeneral at gmail.com. I will be sure to reply back to you. Uh, you know, if you have any ideas for future episodes, topics you want us to cover, uh, comments about the uh, the show, uh, we love we love to hear all of it. So, uh, yeah, all that means means a lot to us. So, appreciate you all listening. Bjorn Sam is good to see you guys. We'll catch you on the next one. MMG out.